Last week, uh, we looked at those iconic verses at the beginning of Romans chapter 12 that tell us we should submit our bodies a, a living sacrifice. And so many of you, you made a commitment or maybe you renewed a commitment to do that. It was so encouraging, and I'm really excited to see what God is going to do in and through new life over the, the weeks and months to come because of what happened last week. And we saw in those verses that being a living sacrifice is a logical, reasonable response to who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We saw that offering ourselves back to God is an act of worship. And remember, we talked about three dimensions of true worship. One, complete surrender, offering your entire self to God. Secondly, cultural resistance, a commitment to, to go against the culture of this world that wants to conform us to its mold. And then third, continual transformation, cooperating with God as he uh, aligns us to his good and acceptable and perfect will. Now, these three dimensions of worship, they're, they're personal, right? We, we make this personal commitment like we did last week to pursue them. But there's a sense in which they're corporate as well. And in our time together today, I want to focus there. I want to look at our worship together as a gospel-centered community. Now, when I was growing up, and probably some of you go back this, this far, pretty much everyone we knew, they, everybody went to church. It was just an accepted thing that you did. You might not go to a church that was teaching the word like maybe it could, but everybody just kind of expected that's just something you do. You're going to go to church. Now, I think you'd agree that's just not the case anymore. Uh, and, and people in our workplaces and neighborhoods, they, don't, they hold that value about being part of a church. And if you say you go to church, you, you get this maybe polite answer, but you can tell they're thinking, why are you doing that? You must be religious or something. I, I don't understand what you get from it. I don't have time for a church. So if someone wanted to ask you, why do we gather as a church on weekends, what would you say? In this online, always connect a world, why do we gather? Can't we just live the Christian life by making those commitments and pursuing those three dimensions of worship individually like we talked about last week? Do, do we need to meet together on an ongoing basis? Well, as we look to answer this question, I think we're going to find an answer in a, in a kind of unlikely place. It's a very rich passage that I think is often overlooked or ignored. And so we're going to look at Luke chapter 24 today. You can grab your paper or your electronic Bible, and the passage is also in your study guide. It's kind of a long passage. So let me read these verses to you. We're going to be in Luke 24, and I'm going to start in verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were walking were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked alongside them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. Well, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. 
They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those with them assembled together, saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Wow, that's an amazing passage. There's a lot to take in here. And we can break this down really into two parts, the road and the room. So let's start with the road. The narrative of the road starts in verse 13, and it starts by saying the same day. What day? What's the very first Easter Sunday, the day of the resurrection? Now, I know it's Palm Sunday this weekend, so some of you might say, Pastor Joe, you're kind of getting ahead of yourself. Well, I think we're going to see from this passage, and we'll get, get to this, there's a connection here with Palm Sunday. So these two followers of Jesus, they're walking around along this road that leads from Jerusalem to a little town called Emmaus. We don't really know where that is. It's, the location is lost. We just know from the account it was between seven and eight miles away from Jerusalem. And we don't know anything really much about these followers either. We know that one was named Cleopas. The other isn't named. Some people think that it might be Luke himself, but that's really pure speculation. So they're walking along the road, and verse 14 says they're talking about everything that had happened. That would be the events of the Holy Week that had just ended. Jesus rides into town, gets a hero's welcome, he's treated like a king. Less than a week later, he's falsely accused and executed. In verses 15 and 16, Jesus himself comes alongside them on the road and joins them. But these travelers, they, they don't recognize him. God somehow supernaturally prevents them from recognizing Jesus. 
And it's interesting, the same thing happened to Mary Magdalene at the tomb, the same thing happened to some of the other disciples who were fishing. They didn't recognize him at first either. So why did God do this? I don't know, if you ask me, I think probably just because if they realized who he was, it would have been hard to have the conversation they were about to have. So Jesus asked them, what are you talking about? Verse 17 says they stopped dead in their tracks, their faces are downcast, and Cleopas says, what, are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what happened this week? So, now obviously, Jesus knows a lot more about what happened than they do, but, but he doesn't let on about that. So in his usual way, he asks them a question. What things? See, he's inviting them to tell him from their perspective what, what's occurred. So they tell him. Now, I think it's really interesting in verse 19, they say Jesus was a prophet, and he was powerful in word and deed. But notice, they stopped short of calling him the Messiah. Yeah, he's a prophet, like Elijah was, or Isaiah, or Jeremiah. He's powerful in speaking. He did all kinds of powerful things. But the religious leaders crucified him. And in verse 21, they tell Jesus they had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. See, it appeared to them like that ship had sailed. So they were disappointed. Things hadn't turned out like they'd hoped. Now, I bet for a lot of us here, probably most of us, there are things in your life that haven't turned out the way you hoped. Maybe you never had the career that you wanted, or your family situation never turned out like you'd like, or your health hasn't been as good as you, you want, or your finances aren't good. Whatever the case is, I bet most of us can relate to the disappointment they were feeling. We know it, how it feels to pin our hopes on something, and it just doesn't go that way. You know, I felt like God was calling me to full-time ministry back in 2007. And everything seemed like it was pointing to that, so I pursued it. And like a lot of you, I served around, you know, work commitments and other stuff in my life. But as the years dragged on, I admit, there were a lot of times along the way, I just wanted to say, you know, I'm going to forget it and move on. It just looked like it wasn't going to happen. But these two travelers' hopes were tied to something that was based on a misunderstanding. Now, here's our tie to Palm Sunday. Just like those Palm Sunday crowds, they gave Jesus a king's welcome. These two followers of Jesus, they shared the same misconception of those crowds. They expected Jesus to come as a political king, overthrow Rome, and establish his kingdom on earth right then and there. When Jesus was crucified, their hopes were dashed. Not only was he killed, he died in a way that was reserved for the lowest of the low. In their minds, Jesus couldn't be who he claimed to be if he was put to death on a cross. See, they couldn't understand that the kingdom Jesus was bringing was a spiritual one, not a political one. But their story isn't over. They tell Jesus that some of their women had gone to the tomb and his body wasn't there. And the women said that an angel told them Jesus was alive. And some of the other disciples, they'd gone to the tomb, but there was no body. They didn't see Jesus there either. So Jesus takes all this in, and then he responds to them kind of harshly. They have all the puzzle pieces right there in front of them, but they can't see the whole picture. And he calls them out for it. He says they're foolish 
because they don't believe what the prophets have been telling Israel for centuries. The Messiah had to suffer before he entered his glory. And that's really the heart of the misunderstanding. That's why they were disappointed. They could not see that the cross wasn't a crushing defeat. They didn't get that it wasn't the end of the story. And the same is true for us. We can't only see in our disappointments and how things have turned out, it isn't necessarily the end of the story. God may yet be at work. It would have been easy for me to give up on that dream of ministry, especially after 11 years of waiting. And there's lots of times I wanted to. But as long as God is telling you to keep going, you got to hang in there with Him. And you got to have faith that the final chapter isn't written yet. And then we see this key aspect of this narrative, verse 27. Jesus shows them, starting with Moses and the prophets, that all of Scripture is about him. Now hang with me here. Think about this. It's Resurrection Sunday. What Scriptures do they have? Not one word in the New Testament has been written yet. All they had was the Old Testament. And Jesus showed them it's all about him. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. And you know what? He ought to know. (laughs) This shows us how critically important prophecy is. I think as we read our Bibles, it's easy to gloss over, you know, Isaiah and some of that. You go, well, it's hard to understand. And you have people out there that are saying the Old Testament is irrelevant to us in the church age. Well, my response to that is this. Jesus didn't think so. And that's really all the evidence we need, right? It matters as much to us today as it did to those two travelers on that road. Now, what scriptures did Jesus talk about? We don't know. He doesn't tell us, but I could guess it might be some of these. How about Genesis 3.15? Talking to the serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Deuteronomy 18.18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. Psalm 22, really the whole thing, starting in verse 16, it says, Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. I could go on and on and on. This just barely scratches the surface of all the stuff the Old Testament says about Jesus. And this is just some of the most obvious stuff. We see Jesus pictured in Isaac and Joseph and Melchizedek and Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon, just to name a few. So the two followers, they reach Emmaus, they're going to go into the village, and they ask Jesus to come in with them for the night. It's getting toward evening. It'd be dark soon. It'd be dangerous to be out in the road after dark. You know, it's not like they had paved roads like we do. 
And robbers preyed on people who are out after dark. So Jesus agrees and goes with them to their place. After the long walk, it would be customary to give a guest bread. And I'm sure they were hungry from their walk. But then something really interesting happens. It's the role of the master of the house to break the bread. But Jesus assumes that role. He breaks the bread. He gives thanks. And he gives it to them. Really interesting. The description here is very similar to that upper room when Jesus established the Lord's table just a couple of days earlier. But Jesus, when he does this really presumptuous thing, suddenly these two followers recognize him. Verse 31 says their eyes were opened. Whatever screen God had put up to keep them from recognizing him is taken down. And they see it's been Jesus all along. So no doubt they're shocked and amazed and they're trying to figure out why they didn't recognize him. But in that moment, Jesus just up and disappears, beamed right up from the dinner table. And they say to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he explained the scriptures to us? Now, I was thinking a lot this week, getting ready for this, about this feeling of having a burning heart. And I try to think about when I felt that way. You know, sometimes I get this feeling in my chest when something concerning happens. I remember times at my job that, you know, I'm going along, I worked as a consultant for a lot of years, I have this assignment, and all of a sudden out of nowhere, hey, we're going to have to end this thing early. And I'm going, what am I going to do for work? You know, and I have this feeling in me. Or I remember feeling that way when I made a serious mistake. That feeling of, oh no, how am I, I going to recover from this? Have you ever felt like that? You know the feeling I'm talking about? You know, maybe part of what they were feeling was, how could we have missed all this truth in Scripture right here in front of us? And here's Jesus calling us out for it. But I think I've also had a similar feeling at times when I've been somewhere and just heard some teaching from the Word that's opened my eyes to some new truth I just hadn't seen before. I remember an April weekend in 1995 when a preacher named Bruce Wilkerson made me see that walking with God in a second-rate way just wasn't going to cut it. And my heart burned that day as I realized the truth of what we talked about last week. I needed to completely surrender to God. So now these two travelers respond in a way that I think is very easy to miss. They invited Jesus in because it's getting dark. It's not safe to be out in the roads. Yet verse 33 tells us they immediately got back up and went back to Jerusalem. That means they ignored all the common sense of that day. They went back the seven or eight miles on foot, in the dark, on uneven, unpaved, dangerous roads to tell the disciples what they experienced. And there's something really important I want us to see here about worship, but we're going to come back to it. Let's keep going. So this leads us to the second part of the narrative, the room. And this part starts in verse 33, when it says our two travelers found the eleven back in Jerusalem. Now, who are the eleven? It's the disciples, right? Minus Judas, who's off the scene. And we also know in this particular case, Thomas wasn't there, because the parallel passage in John 20 tells us that. And the room where the disciples and the followers of Jesus had gathered was locked. Again, the parallel passage in John 20 says this. So our travelers arrived, they let him in, 
Verse 34 says there's this discussion going on in the room. They're, they're telling the Emmaus pair when they come in. It's, it's true. Jesus is alive. Simon saw him, who we better know is Peter, right? And, of course, they in return are telling him, Jesus walked with us on the road, and he broke bread, and he disappeared. And while they're telling him all about this, Jesus shows up. So just like he disappeared in Emmaus, he suddenly appears in a locked room. And those gathered, they're scared by this, right? They, they think they're seeing a ghost. And I guess that'd be a pretty natural reaction to see a guy you saw die appear out of nowhere in a locked room. <laughs> so as Jesus often did, he reassures them, right? He says, hey, don't be scared, it's me. And he shows them proof by showing them his hands and feet, and he tells them to touch him. He says, hey, a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones. Now notice what he doesn't say here. He doesn't say flesh and blood. You notice that? In other words, yeah, Jesus is here. He has a body. He's not just a disembodied spirit of some kind. But the blood, that's a human thing. That blood's already been dealt with with Jesus. So now he's got this glorified body. He can come and go just by appearing and disappearing. He didn't have to travel places like we do. Yet, his glorified body still has the marks of his sufferings. The nail prints are there. And he shows them as proof of who he is. Now the passage says they're still having a hard time believing who he is. It says because of their joy and amazement, it says. So he asks for something to eat. It's not because he's hungry. They give him this fish and he eats it. It's, it's like proof that he's really a person. It's like, hey, he's no ghost. Then just like on the road, he says, I told you when I was with you that everything had to be fulfilled it was written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And so once again, he explains the scripture to them, how it's all about him. It says he opened their minds. Back in verse 46, he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And then he tells them, hey, you're witnesses to these things. Now, I think the accounts here of the road and the room are really powerful. They tell us a lot about who Jesus is and his mission. And it's really surprising to me this chapter isn't talked about more. But I want us to see something really important here that speaks to us about why we gather each week for corporate worship. Now, maybe you've heard people say something like this, because I've heard this lots of times over the years. I don't like Church X. I'm not being fed there. You ever heard that? I have. And I think it really shows a fundamental misunderstanding about why we gather. Folks, we've got to be feeding ourselves on the Word daily. We shouldn't be relying on coming here once a week to do that. If this is your only time to receive the Word, then yeah, you aren't being fed like you ought to be. Our Emmaus friends show us the answer to our question. Why do we gather? As we're in the Word, and we're experiencing amazing things in our life with Jesus every week, like them, we should make it a priority to gather with others in the church body because we can't wait to share what Jesus is doing in our lives and the lives of other people. These two followers of Jesus made this dangerous trip in the dark back to Jerusalem because they couldn't wait to tell the rest of them what they had experienced with Jesus. And likewise, they get there, they can't wait to tell them, hey, Jesus is alive, we've seen him. 
Hebrews 10 verse 24 says this, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So yeah, we have technology today, right? We could, maybe we could use it to get around gathering. We could have like a Skype church or something, you know? But the command of Scripture is clear. We need to gather so we can encourage one another. And the closest, closer we get to Jesus' return, the more we should be doing it. And I don't know about you guys, but I think His return's getting pretty close. Yeah, we come here and we sing songs that encourage us, help us remember the Word. And we pray because Jesus said His house would be a house of prayer. And we hear the Word explained in ways that help us to understand it better, just like Jesus opened their minds to the pieces they couldn't put together. But we don't just come to receive, we come to give. We come to serve and we come to celebrate how God is at work in us. And, and I, notice this, they didn't have to be told what the Word said, these, these folks. They knew that already. They'd been fed. Jesus just explained to them how all the pieces fit together. And he was a little bit annoyed at them. They couldn't figure it out for themselves. Even before they realized who Jesus was, they were encouraged by the truth of who Jesus is and what he'd done and the realization that the resurrection had flipped their discouragement to joy. So what can we take for these, from these two narratives heading into Holy Week? I'm just going to give you three really quick things. First, open your eyes. Cleopas and his friend stopped in their tracks when Jesus asked them to explain why they, why they were downcast. Jesus explained the truth of the scriptures. Once their eyes were opened, the reality of the resurrection set in. And that helped them to see that their disappointment was unfounded. They only saw Jesus as a prophet, not the Messiah, but Jesus showed them the truth of who he really was. You know, all the events that caused them to be discouraged, they were a necessary part of the plan, right? They fulfilled those Old Testament prophecies. They showed not that Jesus had been defeated, but he'd been vindicated. Events that seemed like they shattered Jesus' claims were in fact the very foundation of what God was doing. You ever feel like you're not seeing Jesus in your life? I do, and I'm a pastor. And unlike those two on the Emmaus Road, it's not God that's blinding my eyes to who Jesus is, it's me. I'm the one that keeps from seeing him. I'm doing it to myself. I, I don't know about you guys, but I think for me, it's just that day-to-day -day stuff of life that distracts me. You know, being busy. It's like I, I forget to notice that Jesus is right here walking with me. As we look ahead to the rest of Holy Week, I want to suggest these events that we've got coming up here at New Life, there are ways to open your eyes to Jesus. Use them that way. Stations of the Cross, Thursday night, starting at 5 o'clock. And then again on Friday in the morning, going through lunchtime. Friday night, Pastor or Rabbi Howard Silverman are going to be, he's going to be with us, walking us through the, the Jewish Passover Seder. Talk about something that shows us how the Old Testament is relevant to us today, and it points to Jesus. And then finally, next week, come ready to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're not just going to look at what it's going to do for us in the coming life, but we're going to look at how it changes us in this life. It's a great time to invite somebody. There's, there are a few invite cards still out there this morning, and I think most of the yard signs were gone. But invite someone. If 
you want to know details, there's stuff about all things Holy Week in the middle of your worship folder. You can check that out. Hebrews 12.2 says we should fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. You need to do that always, but especially in Holy Week. Second, open your mind. As Jesus spoke to his followers in the room, it says in verse 45, he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. John Calvin said this about that verse. There is no worse screen to block out the spirit than confidence in our own intelligence. We think we have all things figured out, right? And it makes us slow to believe. Those followers of Jesus had a hard time wrapping their mind around a Messiah that was going to suffer and die despite the fact that the Old Testament says it over and over again. And notice, both in the case of those Emmaus travelers and the gathering in the room, Jesus didn't tell them anything new. He just called them to understand and believe what had already been spoken through Scripture. Now, yeah, they were understandably afraid when Jesus appeared out of nowhere. They thought he was some kind of ghost or something. And maybe, just maybe, they're a little sheepish about the fact that they deserted him when he was taken into custody. You ever think about that? But Jesus goes out of his way to spell their fears. And I think it's significant. Here's Jesus showing up with them for the first time since they all turned their backs on him. Did he confront them about it? Did he take them to task for it? Did he repay them in kind for their betrayal? No. He says, peace be with you. He went out of his way to comfort them and to encourage them with the truth. You want to see, show somebody God's grace displayed through Jesus? Take them to Luke 24. And still today, Jesus overcomes our fears through belief. You know, some of you made a commitment to be a living sacrifice last week. And I, and I know there's probably some of you who are going, well, I, I want Jesus to change my life, but I'm worried about what that's going to mean. I know some of you, you want to get involved in the serving, but you have fears about taking that step and getting involved. I was going to speak for our worship arts area. Now look around this room. I know there's many of you that sing. You could be in the choir. It's only six times a year. It's not that big a commitment. Next time's June 23rd. Put it on your calendar. I know some of you, I'll look around this room again, play wind and string instruments. Dust that thing off and get in the game. We're playing on Easter next weekend. It's not too late. There's details in your worship folder. I'm serious. Show up Tuesday night for rehearsal and come join us. Serve in technical ministries. You have to have some skills, but you don't have to be a guru. And that's just worship arts. There's kids' life and student ministries, going on a mission trip, local outreach, being involved, maybe leading a small group. There's like a hundred places around here to serve. You know, and the other thing is this, if God's tapping you on the shoulder to get involved, you know, you're not doing it alone. God's not going, all right, well, hey, you're on your own now. No, he's going to walk with you. In fact, John 15, 5 says, Jesus himself said, you can't do any ministry apart from me. If you believe that God's calling you to serve, He's going to empower you to do it, and he's going to walk with you every step while you're doing it. You've got to open your mind and believe God, and in doing so, let him put those fears to rest. And then third, open your arms. We ended here at verse 48, as Jesus tells these folks in the room, you're witnesses. And we are too today. 
Now, we're not eyewitnesses like they were. We didn't see it firsthand. But we're sure witness of what God has done in our own lives and people around us, right? We've experienced how Jesus has changed us as we cooperate with his work in us, that process of transformation that we talked about last week. As we watch these things that work in us, we, we gather every week and we share them and encourage each other through them. We share them in our small groups, seeing God at work. And you know what? It's too good to keep to ourselves. Listen, these frightened followers of Jesus, without the benefit of modern transportation or technology, reach the world with the news of who Jesus is. The fact that you're sitting here in this room 2,000 years later hearing about it is a testament to what they did. They shared the good news of Jesus with everyone they could. As followers of Jesus, we need to be witnesses of what he's done in, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods. We've seen the evidence of the risen Christ in our lives. That's way too good to keep to ourselves. A dying world needs Jesus to bring them life. And I'm not just talking about life in this life, but life, a glorious life in the one to come, where Jesus could be their substitute and pay for their sins. You've got to share that news with anyone who will listen and give it away with open arms. So we gather to share and encourage one another with everything Jesus has done and is doing in us because it's just too exciting to keep to ourselves. It looked like Jesus was crushed, but instead it was sin and death and the grave that were crushed. Jesus was victorious. We need to have open eyes to see Jesus for all he is. We need to have open minds and believe and overcome our fears. We need to have open arms and share these things with each other and with the world. Let's pray. Let's just take a quick moment here. I want to bow our heads just for a minute and reflect on what God wants to say to us here today. I wonder as we went through this passage, if there's one of these three things we talked about, did, did your heart burn within you as we looked into the Word? You need to open your eyes to Jesus. You need to open your mind and believe and overcome your fears. You need to open your arms to others and as a witness of what Jesus has done. If one or more of those applies to you, would you just raise your hand and say, hey, Pastor Joe, will you pray for me? Oh, yeah, lots of you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Let me pray. God, it's, wow, it's just a, a joy to open this passage today. I love it so dearly. I feel like we've only just glossed over it. But I pray, God, that it's going to make a difference in us. Help us to have open eyes to see you better, especially here in this Holy Week, and open minds to believe. And God, for those who are fearful, I pray that you would use belief in you, open their minds to see who you are and overcome those fears. And God, for a lot of us, we just need to make a commitment in our own hearts to open our arms and take the message of who Jesus is into our communities and to the world itself. Help us. God, again, Jesus, you told us we can't do any ministry apart from you. So we need you. Come and help us do it. Help us to trust you in that. Follow you every step of the way. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.